Praise the Lord. It's good to be in the Lord's house again this evening. Amen. Amen. Good to be in the Lord's house this evening. Uh, welcome to each of you to the service uh, tonight. If you're turning your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter number 16, continuing uh, on with our theme uh, tonight, Matthew chapter number 16, verse 13, and uh, we'll be reading, Lord willing, down through uh, verse number 19. It says there in the 13th verse, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Amen. Look with me again at verse number 18. He says, our Lord says, Jesus says, and upon this rock I will build my church. Notice what he says of that church. Notice how he, he, um, he describes that church. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Amen. Again, continuing this uh, series about uh, Anabaptism, and uh, we've talked about a number of subjects here these last uh, few evenings together. We, we talked about their uh, biblicism. Uh, they're taking the Bible uh, literally, the high regard that they had for uh, the Scripture uh, their belief that God means what he says and that he says what he means. And then we talked about the preeminence and the centrality of, of Jesus. And that is that Jesus was the center of their faith. He was, he was the lens through which they looked at Scripture. And then we talked about uh, last evening the, their view of what Christianity uh, is. And that is that they believed, as Bender put it uh, years ago, that the essence of Christianity is discipleship. Again, the essence of Christianity, it is discipleship. Or, again, if we put it in simpler terms, it could be summed up in the two words of Jesus that we read last evening in our text. Simple yet profound words. Those words, follow me. Follow me. Luke 9.23, that, uh, that verse that we read last evening. And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is Christianity. Amen? Following Jesus. And one of the things that I, I admire most I admire most about these saints was how seriously, how earnestly, and how faithfully they sought to do that in every single area of their lives. And that's a blessing. That's a challenge to me, to follow Jesus in everything. As we talked about the first evening, and, and, and at the very least have made mention of the last few evenings, the, the early Anabaptists found themselves in a very dark time. And, and when they, uh, they, they read the scriptures and they compared the scriptures with the, the church, and when they compared the scriptures with those who called themselves Christians, they were troubled. Because they saw even in the Christians and even in the church immorality and, and drunkenness and, and evil speaking, profanity, gluttony, and all manner of evil. And, and what they saw was that the church and the people that made up the church looked very, uh, uh, very similar to the people of the world. There wasn't much difference. They saw a brand of Christianity that looked very unchristian. I want to read again from that book entitled An Introduction to Mennonite History by Cornelius Deke. 
let's come back to that again. He writes, A trend towards the total acceptance of Christianity into society received dramatic reinforcement when Constantine became the emperor of Rome. Christians were now the royal favorites, while non-Christians were soon persecuted. Sunday was decreed a public day of rest and worship, combining pagan celebration with a Christian desire to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as Christ and to distinguish themselves from the Sabbath-keeping Jews. Now let me just say something real quickly. Notice that statement there, combining pagan celebration with a Christian desire. Now, it's interesting that we find ourselves on the, the, uh, the day before Easter. And uh, as it is popular among uh, many people, um, as it is popular with many churches, and as it is popular with many people that make up churches as Christians, uh, there are a number of things that we do at Easter that if we were to trace them back, they tie directly with paganism. Where does the bunny come from? How did an egg ever get associated with the resurrection of Jesus? You search them back to their roots. They're pagan. There's no question about that. Again, combining pagan celebration with a Christian desire to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as Christ and to distinguish themselves from the Sabbath-keeping Jews. Now, if I was to say what I just said, in some churches, I'd probably have eggs thrown at me. As emperor, Constantine wrote letters of, the instruction, of instruction to the clergy, though he himself was not a baptized Christian, and enforced the discipline of the church with the power of the state. He called the clergy together at state expense to consider basic issues of faith and sometimes chair these meetings personally. Why he did this is not clear, but he needed an appealing state religion to unify the empire, and he may have been, at the very least, attracted to the Christian faith. Whatever the reasons, from that time on, the church and state went hand in hand. And though they were to quarrel often in the centuries to come, no one seriously questioned this Constantine synthesis for over 1,000 years. A Christian society into which all persons were born as citizens and baptized as infants, as Christians, seemed to be the fulfillment of God's plan for humankind. And it was in this endeavor, this endeavor of making society, quote, Christian, that the church had failed. And it had failed miserably. And those early Anabaptists, they saw this, they realized this, they recognized this, and they concluded that the church that they read about in the New Testament the church of the apostles, the early church, that it had become corrupted and that it had lost its purity. They believed that it had long since ceased to be the church that Jesus spoke about in our text when he said, upon this rock I will build my church. Now, let me ask you a question. Whose church is it? It's his church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And this corruption, this corruption of the church was referred to by the early Anabaptists as the fall of the church. Now, there's a book entitled The Reformers and Their Stepchildren written by a man by, by the name of Leonard Vaudon. And this is what he said. The fall of the church, this fall of the church has so changed the appearance of the bride of Christ as to make her unrecognizable when compared to the scriptures. Unrecognizable. She who had been sent on a mission of healing and helping had taken on the features of a modern police state. The church had fallen far. And it was Conrad Grebel among others, who saw the tasks of the Anabaptists not to bring reform to the fallen church or not to, to bring reform to the corrupt church like Luther tried to do or like Zwingli tried to do or planned to do, but to start afresh and to start anew and to rebuild the church on its original foundation. Grable wrote this, just as our forebears follow, fell away from the true God 
and from the knowledge of Jesus Christ and of the right faith in him and from the one true common divine word and from the divine institutions, from Christian love and life and live without God's law and gospel in human, useless, unchristian customs and ceremonies and expected to attain salvation therein, yet fell far short of it. As the evangelical preachers have declared, and to some extent are still declaring so today too, every man wants to be saved by a superficial faith, without fruits of faith, and without the baptism of test and probation, without love and hope, without right Christian practices, and wants to persist in all of the old-fashioned of personal vices and in the common ritualistic in anti-Christian customs of baptism and of the Lord's Supper in disrespect for the divine word and in respect for the word of the Pope and of the anti-papal preachers, which yet is not equal to the divine word nor in harmony with it. In respecting persons, he goes on to say, in respecting persons and in manifold seduction, there is grosser and more pernicious error now than there has ever been since the beginning of the world. In the same error, too, we lingered as long as we heard and read only the evangelical preachers who are to blame for all of this in punishment for our sins. But he says, but after we took the scriptures in hand, after we took the scriptures in hand too and consulted it on many points, we have been instructed somewhat and have discovered the great and hurtful error of the shepherds and of ours too, namely that we do not daily beseech God earnestly with constant groanings to be brought out of this destruction of all godly life and out of human abominations and attain to true faith and divine Instructions. Our forebears fell away from the true God and from the one true common divine word, from divine institutions, from Christian love and life, and lived without God's law and gospel in human, useless, unchristian customs and ceremonies. And so they set out to rebuild the church upon its original foundations. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And they set out to rebuild that church again on its original foundation upon Jesus. And the pattern for which they used to rebuild this church, the plan that they undertook was the New Testament to follow the New Testament, to be true to Scripture. The pattern was the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles, and the way they set out to rebuild that church was through preaching and through teaching and through baptizing. They took Christ's command seriously when he said in the Great Commission, Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. I, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now let me ask you something, brothers and sisters, as I've asked you before. How seriously do we take that command as his church today? How seriously do we take that command? They set out to rebuild this church, not by force, not by coercion, not through the power of the state, not by the sword, but they set about to rebuild build this church by gathering a church of believers who had willingly and who had freely responded to the gospel. And their focus, the focus of those early Anabaptists was on the New Testament concern for the gathered visible church of those who had been, again, as we talked about last night, those who had been regenerated. And I'd like to focus this evening on some of the marks 
or some of the characteristics of that church. The first of those marks is just that. And we spoke of this last evening to some extent. The first of those marks is regeneration. Now we have a number of terms that we use to describe that. Regeneration, being born again, the new birth, the second birth, the birth from above. But that regeneration, it must precede baptism. Amen. It must precede baptism. Baptism then preceded church membership. The Anabaptists talk much about regeneration. Dirk Phillips said this, that the born-again children of God and new creatures in Christ Jesus are those who are born the second time out of God, the Heavenly Father, through Christ Jesus and are renewed and sanctified through the Holy Spirit. They have become participants of God's nature, of the being of Jesus Christ, and of the character of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. Look, listen to how he describes this. He said that they are those who have died to sin and still die daily more and more and experience righteous living. They never boast in themselves, but only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to them and they to the world. They walk in true faith according to the teachings of Christ and follow in his footsteps. They know no one according to the flesh. Neither do they have an appetite for that which is human, but rather for that which is divine. In summary, these are righteous and do righteousness just as God of whom they are born is righteous. These are minded like Christ Jesus and are motivated by none other than the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you again tonight that they believed in change. They believed in transformation. I think of that story found there in the Gospel of Luke chapter number 8. And as I mentioned to you one of the other evenings that we were in Israel in October and and uh, we're able to take a boat out on the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and when we were on the, the ship, the guide pointed out where Jesus met that, uh, that man who was filled with that legion of demons. And, uh, and that story, I'm going to tell you what, that story has fascinated me for for years that story has fascinated me you know you know the story uh, Jesus and his uh, his disciples they 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 come up to the seashore and 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 when they got to the uh, the shore there was this man that 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 came down the bible says that he didn't have any clothes on uh, the bible says that he didn't live in a house but rather he lived in the tombs he was crazy but, but the Bible tells us that when he, he saw Jesus, that he cried out. It says, I'm reading, or looking at Luke chapter 8. He, it says that he cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. And the Bible tells us that they had, had tried to take this man. They had tried to, to bind him with chains and, and with fetters. But every time they would do that, he would just, he would just break those chains. He would break those fetters. The Bible tells us there that Jesus asked him, what is, is, is your name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And we know the story, right? There was a, there was a big herd of, of pigs there. They were, they were feeding on the, the cliffs or on the mountainside. And they, they asked Jesus, hey, would you just, uh, uh, if you're going to make us come out of this man, would you just put us into these, to these swine, these pigs? Devils went out of the man, the Bible tells us. They entered into the swine. The, the herd of swine runs violently down into the Sea of Galilee, and they, they drown. But I, but I love what it says there in verse 34 and verse number 35. It says that when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. And then they went out to see what was done. And they came to Jesus and found the man, the same man that we just were talking about. They found the man out of whom the devils were departed 
sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what's it say there? It says clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I love that picture. I love that picture. This man possessed with devils. This man that was running around naked. This man that was in torment. This man that was in bondage. This man that was violent. This man that was, I mean, as, as, as far as we might describe him, a man that was crazy. But then he met Jesus. But then he met Jesus and he was changed and he was transformed. He became a, a new man. You see, brothers and sisters, the early Anabaptists believed in that type of transformation. They believed that Saul's could become Paul's. They believed that, that, that harlots could become holy women of God. They believed that sinners could become saints. They believed in regeneration, in new birth. And again, I tell you, you may be here tonight, I don't know. But you may be here tonight, you've not been saved, you've not been born again, you're, you're living in sin, and maybe you have cleaned up the outside okay, and you've got a lot of people fooled, but inside you know, you know that you're lost. And I want to tell you, by, 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 by the authority of Scripture and by personal experience, that Jesus Christ can change your life. Jesus Christ can set you free. He changed my life. He set me free. And if he can do it for this guy, and if he can do it for me, then I know that he can do it for you. I know it. In 1538, there was an unnamed, we don't know who it was, an unnamed Anabaptist leader in Bern who said, or who wrote, while yet in the natural church we obtained much instructions from the writing of Luther and Zwingli and others concerning the mass and other papal ceremonies that they are vain, yet we recognized a great lack as regards to repentance and conversion and the true Christian life. And upon these things, he says, that my mind was bent. I waited. And I hoped for a year or two since the minister had much to say of amendment of life and of giving to the poor and of loving one another and abstaining from evil. But I could not close my eyes to the fact that the doctrine which was preached and which was based on the word of God was not carried out. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen anymore? No beginning was made towards true Christian living. And there was no unison in the teaching concerning the things which were necessary. And although the mass and the images were finally abolished, true repentance and Christian love were not in evidence. Changes were made only as concerned external things. This gave me occasion to inquire further into these matters, and then God sent his messengers, Conrad Grable and others, with whom I conferred about the fundamental teachings of the apostles and of the Christian life and practice, and found them men who had surrendered themselves to the doctrine of Christ by repentance, evidenced by fruits. Now, if you notice, that's, that seems to be a theme that comes over and over uh, uh, through in their writings. Repentance evidenced by fruit. Repentance evidenced by fruit. With their assistance, we established a congregation in which repentance was in evidence by newness of life in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. They believe that. But again, when they looked at the church, they didn't see the evidence. They didn't see the fruit. They didn't see the change. They didn't see the transformation. They did not see Jesus in the lives of those who claimed to be his followers. And they looked at the professing Christians. They looked at the scriptures. Jesus, or Peter says, of, of, uh, of, of our 
calling as Christians for even hereunto we are called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And they rejected a Christianity where that call, that call to follow Jesus was not answered in obedience. And they rejected a Christianity in which true discipleship was not in evidence. The second mark of the church that I'd like to speak of this evening is baptism. Not a baptism of infants who cannot consent or comprehend or understand, not a compulsory or a mandated baptism, not something that was, um, that was coerced or forced upon someone by the state, not a baptism that was administered haphazardly or indiscriminately, but rather a believer's baptism. A baptism that meant something. Let me say it like this. A biblical, a biblical baptism. A baptism that can only be administered to those who have experienced that new birth. To those who have been born again. To those who voluntarily desire it. To those who seek it as an act of obedience to God. First Peter chapter 3, verse number 21. Speaking of baptism, the like figure whereunto even baptism also doth not now save us, not putting away the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some years ago, some years ago, We had a young lady at, uh, at our church who had been in attendance for, I don't know, probably a period of months. And uh, she had came to, uh, to, to me and asked me or, 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 or told me that she would like to uh, see about transferring her membership uh, to, to our church, to Zion. And um, so I contacted the bishop at the, the previous church uh, that she had been a member at to discuss uh, that transfer of, of membership. And I'll never forget what he told me in that conversation. He's a good brother. I, I want to make that very clear. He's a good brother, um, been a very good uh, uh, acquaintance of mine through the years. But I'll never forget what he told me about this young lady who has been baptized in their church, who had been a member of their church. He told me, make sure that she has been born again. Make sure that she has been born again. And I, I was rolling this over and over in my mind as, as I was on the phone and as we, as we finished our conversation, as I, as I hung up the phone and, and, and contemplated that, kind of considered it and pondered it uh, for a little while. And I just had to think to myself, why in the world would you baptize someone if you were not sure that they had been born again? That bothered me. And I began to wonder, could it be church that we have people in our churches that have been baptized, that have been taken in as members who have never actually experienced the new birth? I'm afraid we do. tell you something woman I want to tell you something man baptism is not being born again being taken in as the member of the church is not being born again Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter number three verily verily I say unto thee except a man be born again he cannot enter the kingdom of God <coughs> being born again precedes baptism baptism precedes church membership You must be born again. There was a really uh, good book on Anabaptist history. Um, I, I, ironically, it's written by a man who's not an Anabaptist, a man by the name of William Estep, and he wrote in a book entitled The Anabaptist Story. And I, I'd recommend that you pick up that book. Um, if you're interested in Anabaptist history, see me 
Um, see me afterwards, I can recommend a number of good books, some books that have been helpful to me through the years. But he wrote in his book, The Anabaptist Story, regarding baptism. Baptism be, uh, thus became for the Anabaptists the door into the visible church. This expression seems to have originated with Balthazar Hubmeyer, but is also found in Reedman and Marpeck as well. Listen to what he says. Baptism marks the juncture of individual discipleship and corporate discipleship. And I want to tell you, I believe in church membership. I, you know, there are some people, you ask them, um, you know, do you, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, where do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church. I watch church on the television. That's where I go to church. I've met people, you ever met somebody like that? Out, out, in the, out in the world, out, out on the street. I heard a man say, well, I'll tell you what, if you if you if your church is the television, next time you get discouraged and you need someone to encourage you, you just go up there and see if that television gives you a big hug. Baptism marks the juncture of individual discipleship and corporate discipleship. And by it, the believer comes submissive to the discipline of the church. That's a word we do not like. <laughs> Submissive to the discipline of the church. Without believers' baptism, the visible church could not exist. Baptism, while necessary as the initial act of obedient discipleship, is also the indispensable sign of incorporation into the visible fellowship of believers. The significance of baptism as subjecting one to the discipline of the church was clearly set forth in the Schleidheim Confession. And it was this discipline, this submission and this discipline that he speaks of that brings us to the third mark that I'd like to speak of this evening. Accountable discipleship. Accountable discipleship. Brothers, we all need accountability in our lives. It was by church discipline that the church set about to maintain clear witness and integrity and purity and holiness in the church. Now, we read a number of things in, in the New Testament. We read the, the same Bible that, that they had. Think of Matthew chapter number 18. A familiar passage, and I, I often refer to uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 as the most quoted verses in Mennonite churches, but yet the least practiced. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a publican. Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one not to eat. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. And lastly, Titus 3.10, a man that is a heretic after the first an admonition reject. Now I want to ask you this evening, brothers and sisters, do we take those words seriously? Do we take those words Words, seriously, they did. But do we? 
And I will just say, brothers and sisters, the things that we tolerate in the church today. I mean, false teaching, the sin, the rebellion, the discord, the, the, the fighting, the, the divisiveness. In the name of tolerance, in the name of love, in the name of acceptance, in our attempts not to judge or in our attempts not to be legalistic. I mean, the things that we just turn a blind eye to in the church today. We have fallen far, and we have allowed some of our churches to become corrupt. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that the Word tells us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It was in their endeavor to keep these biblical commands and to maintain the purity of the church through biblical discipline that they succeeded in many respects. They insisted on holiness. They held each other, each other to a high standard of conduct, a very high standard of conduct. As a matter of fact, they held each other to such a high uh, standard of conduct that they were often accused by their enemies of believing or teaching sinless perfection. That is, that, that perfection was attainable in this life. Dirk Phillips said in response to those accusers, nevertheless, this must be understood with due discretion for that Christians are to be holy even as God is holy and perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. It cannot and must not be understood as meaning that Christians can or may become as holy in this temporary this earthly life as God is, but rather that they are to seek after holiness with all earnestness, as Paul the Apostle did when he said that his whole aim and effort was to know Jesus and him in the power of his resurrection. They understood that perfection was not attainable in this life. They knew that sinlessness, was not a possibility, but they used church discipline to maintain the quality of living that separated them as the church from that church that had been corrupted, that church that they believed to be the fallen church. Another mark of the church was the ethic of love and non-resistance, and we've spoke of this in at least small measure thus far. Now, remember, these men were strict biblicists. That means that they believe that God says what he means and means what he says. So when Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse number 35, by this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one to another. I wonder, I really wonder, if we took that to heart as Christians today, how different would our churches be? I mean, to really love each other, to respect each other, to treat each other with kindness, to prefer the other above, ourselves I mean I'm telling you brothers and sisters the things that people that I've dealt with at church and, and uh, in the past the things that people fight about I remember one time I got done uh, preaching and there was a meal that, that we were having there at the church and I was trying to talk with you know the people from the church the congregation maybe visitors that were there and a brother came to get me and said hey Tom we, we need you upstairs and uh, went upstairs and there were a uh, number of uh, sisters in the, the room up there and I believe Mr. Tabitha I was the only man is that right and uh, I mean they were it, it wasn't, it wasn't, when I walked into that room, I knew something was really bad. And uh, they, they, there was, there was yelling, uh, 
there was one sister said that Satan was using uh, certain sisters in the church. And you know what kind of one of the things that brought it to a head was that somebody had bought a sofa for the youth room without consulting someone else. Could you imagine sisters in the church, Christians, fighting over a sofa? You know, churches have been split over sofas. Churches have been split over the color of carpets. Brother Jimmy's another As best I can tell, the Bible doesn't say, say you have to have a sofa in the youth room or you don't. You see, sometimes, brothers, in love, we need to agree to disagree on some things. And you know what I've learned about Mennonite people? They don't like to do that. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. That love was the basis for all relationships. That love was the basis for evangelism. That love was the basis for fellowship. That love was the basis for how they interacted with those, not just the, the brothers and sisters at church, but also those who counted themselves as their enemies. They took to heart what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read it. Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thee not away. You have heard that it hath been said, again, talking about the Old Testament, back in the old days, you've heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Let me ask you, brothers, how can we love our enemies if we don't even love the brothers and sisters at church? That's good preaching. Loving one's enemies, doing good to those that would hurt us, not taking up arms when it comes to, uh, to military uh, actions, not using force. History tells us that the early church, they did not allow members of the church to be soldiers up until around the time of Constantine. They didn't allow members to be involved in politics, to hold political office. If someone was a soldier upon conversion, they had to leave the military. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I was, I was, I, I was preaching uh, at home, and I was preaching on non-resistance. I'm going to tell you, as uh, I, I mean, I've, I've been a preacher for a long time, and, 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 and I'll tell you this, that some of the messages that have caused me the most opposition are the things that we as Anabaptists hold as, 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 uh, as beliefs and what we have held beliefs for centuries, things like non-resistance. I preached a message on non-resistance, and, and uh, uh, again, I was trying to talk to everybody after church, and I knew that uh, there was a relative of one of the brothers at church that was there, and I and he somehow got out of the church before I could I could talk with him, and I told his brother-in-law, I said, you know, I saw your brother-in-law was here today at church, and I'm sorry that I didn't get to, to, to talk with him. And he said, well, Tom, it's a good thing you didn't, because he was so mad at your sermon, he literally wanted to punch you. I'm, I was thinking, well, I'm glad I didn't say hello then, too. If someone, again, was a soldier upon their conversion, they had to give up their position as a soldier. Again, the Anabaptists, they, they, they read the Word of God. They read the Scriptures, and it could be said that they rediscovered the ethic of, of, of love and non-resistance, which had long since been forgotten which the early church had, but somehow, again, through, throughout uh, time and throughout history, somehow it had been lost. 
again. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Perhaps one of the greatest illustrations of that, of that love that our Lord speaks of here was when Dirk Willems. We probably know who, who that is. We probably know what he did when he was running from his pursuers after escaping prison. He crosses on the ice of the river safely, but then one of his captors pursuing him falls through the ice. We've probably all seen that woodcut. We know the story. Instead of continuing with his escape, he turns around. He rescues his pursuer only to be recaptured, only to be imprisoned, and then sometime later, be tortured, and to be killed. Brothers and sisters, that is love. And we see this over and over and over and over again throughout history. Love for their enemies, doing good to those that had hurt them, uh, praying for those that had persecuted them. That is the love of Jesus. And let me ask you again this evening, do we have that same love of Jesus working in us? And it was that love, that intense, that fervent love that they had that energized them in their evangelism. Non-resistance, again, it's been called the negative affirmation of that love. Evangelism, missions, it was the positive affirmation of that love. Again, they believed that the, the Great Commission was binding upon every true disciple of Jesus Christ, not just the preachers, not the, just the bishops, not just the pastors, not just the deacons, on every true disciple of Jesus Christ. They took the gospel with them wherever they went. Sebastian Frank, an opponent of Anabaptism, wrote this in 1531. The Anabaptists spread so rapidly that their teaching soon covered the land as it were, and they gained such a large following and baptized thousands, drawing to themselves many sincere souls who had a zeal for God. They increased so rapidly that the world feared an uprising by them Though I have learned that this fear had no justification whatsoever, Heinrich Bullinger said that the people were running after them as though they were living saints, while another said that Anabaptism spread with such speed that there was reason to fear that the majority of the common people would unite with this group. They took the gospel message with them wherever they went. Can you, I, I can only imagine, I can only imagine what it would be like if you and I, if we as Anabaptists today could recapture that same zeal, that same burden, that same passion. Preaching and proclaiming and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are other marks that we could speak of on and on. We could go, but this Anabaptist vision, their passion for their, the word, their passion for following Jesus, their passion for being real and genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, their, their love one for another, their love for their enemies, their love for the lost, their concept of what church is. Jesus said again in our text, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My prayer and I trust and I hope and I believe that yours is too. My prayer is that the Lord would make us that same church again. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. And Lord, we are reminded tonight that it is your church. And we are reminded tonight that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And from that picture from that, 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 that I, I gather from those words that you gave, it is the church attacking the very fortress, the very gates of hell. And crushing them. 
and knocking them wide open. Lord, that is what you ordained the church to be. And yet, Lord, it seems as if we are hunkered, as if some of us are hiding. Seems as if some of us are scared and just trying to hold our own. But Lord, your plan for the church was much greater. Your plan for the church is for that church to be a mighty and unstoppable force. And Lord, when I read about those early Anabaptists, when I even go further back in history and I read about the early church, that is what we see, a mighty and an unstoppable force. But Lord, when I look at the church today, I wonder, where has that might, where has that power, where has it gone? Lord, I pray that you would help us as your church today to be true to your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to emulate and to imitate you, Jesus, in all things. Lord, I pray that our churches, Lord, that our churches would be built upon clear biblical teaching and that the decisions that we make, the efforts that we put forth, God, that everything that's said and done, Lord, that we would, we would strive only to do that which is according to your word and to scripture. But God, I pray tonight for your church today, help us to be strong. God, help us to be mighty. Make us an unstoppable force of which, uh, against which the gates of hell have no chance. God, I pray for revival. God, I pray for revival among your people today. God, I pray that you would stir us. God, I pray that you would shake us. God, I pray that you would help us not to be satisfied with the way things are. God, help us not to be content. Help us not to be complacent. Help us not to look at your word or to look at those Anabaptists, early Anabaptists, and say, well, that was 